0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at biggreenegg.com and springermountainfarms.com.
2: the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are coming to you from the Culinary Village. We are in the Heritage Radio Network TP. We're in the TP. We're in the TP. And today we have an incredible lineup of guests. We have some real great people. And I'm going to give everybody a quick intro and then we're going to get into it. Matt Tunstall is proprietor of Stems and Skins in Park Circle, which is in North Charleston. It's a neighborhood bar serving wine, cocktails, and beers from the, around the world. Matt also spent four years as a sommelier with Sean Brock at Husk. So Matt kind of knows the ins and outs of the uh, Charleston market. We have one of the great California wine winemakers, Robert Sinski. He's the proprietor of Robert Sinski Vineyards in Napa, California. Robert's Winery is a whole farm philosophy producing non-interventionalist wines since 1991. We have Blake Hartwick. Blake is the executive chef at Bonterra Restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina. Blake is bringing a new take on Southern cuisine and his love of local fresh flavors. And we're waiting for Carrie Bringle, who's making his way over here. <laughs> Carrie is a Nashville native, and he's proprietor and pitmaster of Peg Leg Porker in Nashville. Welcome everybody to the Heritage Radio Network and welcome to our Charleston Food and Wine Culinary Village set of shows. All right, so our friend Robert Sinski brought five bottles of wine for us to drink, which we will drink on the panel during the course of the show. So you may sense towards the end a little less focus, but that's okay. Um, so, Robert, tell us just quickly what we have in front of us.
3: All right, we have uh, a few of my wines, starting with a Vangria Pinot Noir, a nice rosé, whole cluster pressed Pinot Noir. This is going to be the killer barbecue wine right here. Always gets you in trouble. Abraxas is a Vendettajoie white. It's a blend of Riesling, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Gewurzemeiner. Nice little spice in the backbone to to hold up to some of the spice in the food. Orgia, which is a skin contact Pinot Gris. My Las Carneros Pinot Noir and a wine called POV for point of view and it is a Merlot Cabernet Franc based blend.
2: Alright, so these wines are all estate grown grapes. (laughs) Planted everything. Robert for every himself wine. grows it, he doesn't contract. And Correct. you vent them, you are the winemaker along with another winemaker. Yeah,
3: Jeff Vernig and I have been working together for thirty years.
2: Right. And these just for our audience, these wines are depending on which bottle are readily available.
3: Mo- at restaurants, the, the wine mo- stores. The ones that you would most see around here would be uh, the Abraxis, the Pinot Noir, and the POV.
2: Okay. Now Matt, Matt's our other resident wine guy. Matt, Matt was a sommelier. Matt said, screw this. I'm leaving sort of the mainstream restaurant business. And Matt opened up his own uh, wine bar called Stems and Skins in northern Charleston. Kind of moved up a little. So first, let's talk about the area. What, what What's going on in the area and why you moved sort of out of Charleston? Downtown.
4: Um Park Circle was real attractive and a couple of reasons. I'll kind of give you the quick story of how it kind of organically happened. But we had looked downtown. I'd been downtown for years and um, we're just kind of getting doors shut every time we were trying to get, some, get something moving as far as like rent and, and getting a space and these and the, things like that. Um, I had a friend who lives up there. I've been buying a lot of wine firm, works for a local distributor and he, he mentioned his neighborhood. Um, and the day we went up there, this is a couple years ago now, we knew that that was our spot. It 's a tight little neighborhood it 's well defined there 's lots of young and families and artists and musicians and things on those lines. got a great vibe to it it 's a little bit outside of the downtown area um, and we just just really felt like that was home in, right off the rip. Now I wanted to, I wanted to be, make, make a change from serving all the tourists and, and visitors to the, to the city in order to serve the community and be a little bit more part of the community and you
2: became selective and you focused your offerings and the type of wines you have. Talk about you know, what you're concentrating on and what you're serving there.
4: Yeah, so it's a wine-focused bar with about 200 wines on the list, maybe 25, 20 to 25 wines per evening um, by the glass. Um, but there also is cocktails and beer because I wanted everybody to feel comfortable, no matter what kind of mood you were in. But the wine focus is wines that are I'm really passionate about. These are wines that are small growers from all over the world. I pay a lot of attention to importers who are searching out um, young and uh, new uh, people that are kind of redefining and/ or defining and/ or redefining their neighborhoods from all over the world, um, wines that are manipulated for the most part, they're fresh and exciting and have energy and, and taste like where they're from. So when, a, when a,
2: a bar restaurant says we have about 200 different wines, right. that rotates and shifts. Right, seasonally,
4: absolutely, and yeah,
2: yeah. Change winemakers' by, taste and all that. By
4: the glass will definitely shift on a seasonal aspect, like bulking up rosé in this time of year, things along those lines, bulking up bubbles and things like that. In our in our hot climate, and making those, make sure those plenty of like you know refreshing aspects and, and a little bit deeper, richer kind of wines for the, the fall and the winter. But it doesn't get that cold here. Cool. Um, the wines by the bottle, I really try to focus on. Um, world class vineyards, world class winemakers, people that again like define their neighborhoods.
2: Great. Mm-hmm. So, Blake, Blake, you're here from Charlotte, North Carolina. You've been at Bonterra for a while, right? 15, 17 years?
5: Yep, it's been um, 16 years. Wow.
2: <clears throat> and I-, I said earlier that you're bringing a new take on Southern cuisine and the love of local fresh flavors. I mean, translate that for us? I mean, what are you actually doing?
5: Well, this this young gentleman next to me, spent some time in Charlotte and... Was he a NASCAR kind of known, driver? Well, it, that's a, the point that I'm getting to is that uh, Charlotte is known for a big banking town or NASCAR and um, <clears throat> or just kind of being a steakhouse. You know, a, a Ruth Chris or a place like that, you right. know, where you, you have the power dinners and all the bankers and we kind of fall in the same line of, of, of his old place, kind of like Husk. And that's what I've done. I've worked in in old southern homes. And, you know, we try to do as much as we can during the year with, you right. know, with our farmers, too. We and, just have a big, we have a lot, a lot of farmers now. We have three huge farmers markets in Charlotte. So it's opened up a lot of doors. Yeah,
2: So a lot more options than you had years ago. Yeah, we have a great. the farmers market versus yeah. suppliers and all well, that. Well, we
5: have a great, uh, it's called Piedmont Culinary Guild. Um, so it's farmers, chefs, restaurateurs. It's kind of a all-in private page, but it's it's really helpful. It's um, there's a big big uh, brotherhood and. Now there's
2: a, the restaurant has a fairly heavy focus on wine. You could say that. I yeah. mean, there's a big seller, a lot of offerings, and yeah. you're we- cooking to that too, right? I mean, when you have that kind of wine list, you want to complement the food, not specifically. Right. But your collection should mirror what type of food.
5: Right. Exactly. <clears throat> we've um we've always done a hundred red by the glass, a hundred white by 100 the glass. Hundred red by the
2: glass. Uh huh. yep. All right. Matt just got up and left. <laughs> Wait. A hundred red by the glass and a hundred white. Yes, sir. And you do two hundred bottles.
4: Yeah. He's All right. Got, I'm he's excusing
2: you now. No. He's got me okay. good. <laughs> Matt's
5: been there before. The the um, where the bar is is where the altar used to be in the church, so it, it fits fits. What's perfect. the
2: focus? Is it california is it french italian is it a little of everything um i would say more
5: californian and then um that's what the market wants yeah uh we do a lot of uh, we do we do have a good spanish portfolio and then french yeah i would say
2: they kind of go neck and neck but more yeah more nice. california driven nice and we have carrie bringle carrie's a nashville native Carrie is one of the great barbecue pitmasters in the United States. And Carrie owns a place in Nashville called the Peg Leg Porker. That's right. And I know you've been asked this a million times, but yeah. you have to assume. Right. There are people that don't know you, have not heard about you. You named your place Peg Leg Porker because? I, ha- I literally
6: am the Peg Leg Porker. I've got one leg. And what happened? Lost my leg to a vicious otter attack on Pickwick Lake. Uh, Everybody thinks those otters are cute and cuddly. They're always we got
2: we got rid of them otters. They're laying
6: on their back. They're busting those muscles on their stomach. They look like they're cute. Don't cross them. They're mean as shit. They will. They bit me in the leg. So, Gangrene set in.
2: So that was
6: the Ro- last I saw of my leg. It was terrible. Robert
2: brought five <laughs> bottles of wine. If I told you that, I'm not giving you any more wine until you tell me the truth. Will you yeah. tell me the truth? <laughs> I did. I, listen,
6: this wine is great. Thank you. <laughs> I'm enjoying some wine right now. Uh, I, I had bone cancer when I was 17, and that's how I uh, actually lost my leg. Uh, other than the vicious otter attack... Uh,
2: that's yeah. how I really lost my leg. <laughs> I, I'm not a big otter fan anymore after that story. They're mean so. as shit. They're terrible. They're ter- <laughs> All right, so I want to ask you a question, and this question is more for me. All right. But I'm sure everyone on this uh, group here, our panel, could help. Yeah. Give me some quick tips and advice on how to be an amateur pit master. Like you're talking about a guy who just has a web we're not doing or we should be doing just to sort of get it right.
6: You know, barbecue is not rocket science. Uh, people have you tasted anything I've made? Yeah. <laughs> taste like rocket fuel. People, yeah people people get all worked up about it. They really all it is is time and temperature. So uh, what I would say is one, give yourself enough time. Okay, don't rush and it. And two, make sure that you take it to the right temperature. So in order for a butt or a shoulder or when a When you whole say hog,
2: temperature, be more specific. In- temperature? Internal
6: temperature of the meat. So you can cook it. We usually tell you to keep the pit at between 200 or 220. Uh, you can take it up to 250. That's no big deal. But the internal temperature of the meat, in order for barbecue to pull, for you to be able to pull it apart, the internal temperature has to reach 192. And a lot of people don't understand that. They, they wonder what they're doing wrong. It's just basic science in the fact that at 192 degrees, the connective tissue, the sinew, the fat renders out and makes you able to pull that barbecue. At 160 degrees, it will stall. So you'll go up, 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 up. You'll hit 160. It'll plateau and stall for about two hours. Don't raise the temperature of your pit. Don't change anything. That's okay when it stalls? It's okay. It's going to stall. It's just the science of
2: the meat. So you shouldn't freak out and turn the heat up. Don't freak out. Don't turn
6: the heat up. Keep it going. And then it'll pop. It'll bust that stall. It'll pop back up. Don't take it off until it's 192 degrees, and then it will pull. And then it will, you can. Then it's pulled pork. If you take it off before 192 degrees, you can slice it or you can chop it. Oh, people ask me all the time. They're like, "How long should I cook it?" It varies. You know what I tell them? Until it's done. (laughs) I mean, do you use a thermometer? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So you know you you don't have to use a thermometer and a lot of people will say, "Oh don't use a the thermometer you can do it by feel that's great you can do it by feel we say poke it and if it feels like a fat girl it's done all right you know so if it's got a lot of push to it it's done. our fat boy my bad don't I don't want, don't want to offend anybody fat boy or girl poke it I would say use a thermometer okay there is I'm, I've been cooking for 30 years, and a lot of pit masters will say, "Well, I just do it by feel." Let me tell you something. There's no substitute for a thermometer, and the actual science of the right. meat tells you that at 192, it will render apart, and it will and it will pull. So use a thermometer. Be don't, patient. Don't...
2: Use a therm- thermometer. Absolutely. And get to that temperature. Yes. All right. So I have Matt and Robert here who can help me with pairings. So let's talk about barbecue. If we had to take a consensus, what's the most popular barbecue? Is it brisket? Is it ribs? Let's pick one thing.
3: You know, you what? Know, brisket is the
2: holy grail. Okay, so let's talk about wines. That not. Pair well, hold on. You're not a different <laughs>
6: That's not from Tennessee. All right. Fist fight. <laughs> Sorry. Well, of course. I'm no, from I, lo- I, love, I love brisket, but in Tennessee, it's pork or it's, it's pork. nothing. South All right. South Carolina all right. Pork. But we're
2: going <laughs> to go with brisket, all right? So... Let's, Matt and uh, Robert. Let's talk about wines, yeah. the type of wines. Let's get specific. What? So you're out back barbecuing. Going to pull some wines out, pair them with the briskets. What would go well? And start, let's be interesting. You
3: start with beer. Start with beer always. Don't Bur- cook in. Cook, cooking process always involves lots of beer. Right. Then you got to move to sake and maybe some cider before you get to the wine. All right, now let's get to the wine. <laughs> Uh, I have had a lot of fun since I've
4: lived here the past seven or eight years and working with restaurants. I had a lot of barbecue and things like that. My hands-down favorite is like Grand Cru Alsatian Pinot Gris. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Power, residual sugar, minerality, the whole That's bit. a good call. What about you? You
3: know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of white wines and barbecue, um, particularly, really? particularly with pork. But when you're getting into something like brisket, I would, I would go to a Gamay, go to a Beaujolais. You, you, a you want, crue, you want Beaujolais. Yeah, you want okay. you want the acid, you want the fruit, but you don't want a lot of wood. Right. You don't want a lot That's of. That's a other, good
2: fun wine. Right. It's not expensive. Right. It yeah. pairs well. Blake, what do you think? You, you're you're serving barbecue. You got to pair of some wines. I like. I like Pinot. I like
5: Pinot with Pinot. Uh, yeah, with okay. you know, pork barbecue. Sometimes it's depends on now. In Charlotte, we're in the middle. We do. We have three different styles of sauces. You know so. We right. got like a vinegar-based sauce, which is you know apple cider vinegar, and then we've got a you know Western barbecue sauce, and then we start getting down the hill here a little bit. It turns to mustard. So every
2: one of those requires a different pairing. I mean that's the diversity Indeed. of barbecue. Yep. That's why I said let's pick you know one thing and all of that. All right, Blake. I wanted to ask you: the uh, culinary culture in Charleston has changed, and you're right. You know next door. And it's sort of become a fixture on the American food scene, Charleston. It was voted by one of the magazines as one of the best cities. What, what do you think of that? And why Charleston? Like, why wasn't it Charlotte? Why wasn't it Boston? I mean, why is it going on here? Well,
5: there's um, there's there's been some chefs that have laid down that foundation when Johnson & Wells was here. Um, was
2: that an influencing reason that it was literally in the backyard?
5: Well, I think that in the in the region and where it is, and a lot of people that have been a part of that, as far as um, the food part of it, like Glenn Roberts with Anson Mills, um, guys like he's worked for in the past that have they they're the ones that have that have put Charleston on the map. You know, um, hands down. You know, there's been five or six guys that well, have really. But, so it's always going to take people
2: with passion and a vision. Why here? I mean, well, I mean, you're you're right
5: on. You're right on the coast. Everything's conducive to. So the time was ready for agriculture, seafood, um, heirloom grains that have just been put to the wayside for so many years. Now that are back, and people want that. You know, when you go to farmers' markets, they're. I mean, we we have three. We didn't have three ten years ago. You know, so I think that everybody's making that movement. You know, it's um
2: people want that. Right. So Robert Sinsky brought us five bottles of wine. We decided to drink during the show, and for some reason we're stalled at one bottle. So I think we should take a 20-second breather, chug down what we have in front of us, and let's get on to the next one, all right? So what you're hearing is wine going down my throat. All right, let's move on to the next one. All right, Matt is, Matt is pouring the wine. All right, I wanted to talk to Matt and uh, Robert about wines, and there's a common thread here, and Robert and I talked about it a little before. Um, there's a movement in wine. It's a, a non-interventionist movement. It's a sustainability thing with the soil, the type of wines, the growers, the growers that buy into it, um, there are some terms that have been thrown around like biodynamics, organic. There's a terrible term natural, which is way too wide and all of that. But Robert since 1991 has practiced non-intervention you know farming practices, a whole farming practice. And Matt is one of those guys that you walk into the bar and he has a selection of those type of wines from those growers, you know more than anybody in the area. So, Robert, I want you to talk to me a little about what it takes. Because Robert's in, in Napa, California, and a lot of wineries don't practice what Robert's doing. So talk to me about, you know, why you committed to it, what you're doing.
3: You know, that, that's, that's a huge question. It's but, a huge uh, you question. Know, you, know, you know, part of it is just doing the right thing. You know, you know, not using toxic chemistry next to homes uh, not making people afraid of what they're going to consume. That, that was uh, uh, the impetus at the beginning. But then it was also about soil health. And if we're dealing with a luxury product, because let, let's face it, if, uh, if you couldn't buy an expensive bottle of wine, you'd go buy a six-pack, you'd go, I mean, I mean, no one needs a bottle of wine. So it is a luxury item. So conventional farming was created to bring produce to market at the lowest cost per unit. So it's sort of counterintuitive when it comes to wine to be using uh, rescue chemistry when, um, uh, when you're dealing with a luxury product. Right. Um, also, the idea of distinctiveness. We're trying to make a product that is unique to us. We're not trying to make a cookie cutter that's going to appeal to any, any wine critic or anything like, you know. We're, we're not trying to hit a standard benchmark plateau. We want to make something that's distinctive for where we're growing it. And but you, you could
2: do that. If you intervene or you don't intervene, you can make distinct wines. Well, the, more, you the more,
3: the more you share the same tools with everyone else, the more things become homogenous. When you can change the flavor what, profile, what are some of those tools? Just oh, the way you from, make wine, right? Any, you know, you any, anything from using superfoods during fermentation, sulfur, you can, you and, can do uh, anything. you you can do a lot of things to manipulate to hit a certain flavor profile that is completely foreign to where you're growing the grapes. Right. And so you can deacidulate, you can make the wine fatter, you can make the wine juicier, you can make the wine woodier, you can do all these things. That's manipulation. That's manipulation. You want to leave it to the
2: terroir, the grape, you don't want to intervene, which in the end will create the style that... You know,
3: you you want something that is seamless, that is balanced, that is refreshing, that feels alive.
2: Right. And Matt, I mean, you've probably drank through as many natural wines as not natural but
4: yeah, I what what's
2: your feeling? I mean the movement I, I, since I've been doing this radio show right. there's a huge interest at least I've been picking up on it. There was a raw wine fair in Brooklyn for the first time. Yeah 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 there are stores dedicated you know you put a big slant toward it is the consumer asking for it do you feel that you have to bring it to the consumer?
4: I try to stay away from the verbiage and the arguments based on that term. Uh, it's a, it'll probably be going on for another hundred years, that the, 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 the constant back and forth. Um, I really focus on wines that, that speak to me, and in turn, I try to share those with people. Over the past 15 years of kind of being a professional wine steward, I've started to lean that way. I don't necessarily ha- uh, love perfect wines all the time. You know, it's okay to have a little bacteria in there. It's a little okay to have a, a little VA or something that went astray in the, in the winery every now and again. A little I, funk. Yeah, absolutely. I call, I mean, I kind of like, I, I p- use the term chasing flavors at the bar a lot for wines. Right. And you find those little imperfections every now and again, and I, for the most part, I embrace them. Now, there's winemakers and wineries that use that terminology, and the wines are undrinkable. And that, that happens too. But there's also little imperfections that happen all throughout these, these wines that I truly embrace. They give a little bit different flavor. And a lot of times I think they speak of the neighborhood. And Robert, find are you going to say well, something? You know,
3: sometimes flaws are character. Right. right. Absolutely. And, you know, Absolutely. You know, we, we are all flawed as human beings. And right. That's what it defines us.
4: Right. If
2: you go after that perfect wine, it, it gets homogenous, like you said, and boring. Absolutely. Um, so you could... Pick up any of Robert's wines, and you'll get a very good uh, example of wines that are, you know, sustainably grown with a lot of care. And if you go up to uh, uh, Matt's place, you'll have a choice. Now, Carrie, I wanted to ask you something. And the my friend Cat at Heritage gave me this suggested question, and I think it's a good one. All right. In the past year, with the elections and everything, there's yeah. just been this whole nationalist, populist, American movement. Right. And I think barbecue and jazz are truly American products. Right. Right. And I think barbecue I'd say blues and soul. Yeah. But, you know, we could probably sit here for another hour and, like, you know, Ford Edsel's, whatever. Uh Um, But barbecue is truly an iconic uh, American thing. What... What, what do we have to do to protect that or keep it, you know, the way it is? I mean, I think if you look in Charleston alone, the proliferation of barbecue places, how do you feel about that?
6: Well, so uh, Charleston has got some great barbecue places. Um, we were at home team last night. Uh, now you've got uh, Lewis's. That's were you Texas eating barbecue. or cooking with them? Well they're close friends of mine we were okay. we we're, we're, were preparing some food for today and also uh, eating with them and um, Lewis is literally at their back door. My good friend Rodney Scott just opened up in town
2: whole hog barbecue um,
6: yeah so you've got a lot of great barbecue here in charleston um, there's a lot of great barbecue throughout the country uh, barbecue has experienced a great renaissance in the last five years. Is it, um, is
2: it as short as five years? Like there's been a big spurt in five yeah, years? Yeah, I'd
6: say in, in five years there's been a big spurt. Uh, barbecue's been around. It is America's food. It is our native food. Um, people get caught up and writers get caught up in telling you what's great barbecue, what's truly barbecue, how it has to be cooked, you know, That's, it's just, it's bullshit. I I tell these writers, you know, excuse my language, but I tell these writers, stop telling people how barbecue has to be cooked. What hits your plate? What's great? I mean, and like, probably like the winemakers that were sitting here today, don't tell me how your wine is made. Tell me what hits your glass and what you appreciate and what's great. Right. Same with barbecue. Eat what you like. You know, we are we do what we call real Tennessee barbecue at my restaurant, which is only pork and chicken. We don't do any brisket. We say if you want brisket, go to Texas. You know, there's a lot of great folks in Tennessee doing what, great what brisket. What happens if a
2: guy comes in and asks for brisket? You don't like lay him, him out. We tell him to idiot. go to Texas. <laughs> we
6: we tell him to go to Texas. We you go to Texas
2: got, <laughs> like this. Get at it. We've got
6: you know we've got a lot of great a lot of great pitmasters in the state of Tennessee that are cooking a lot of great barbecue. Some of them cook great brisket. Um, I don't don't want to tell you how great barbecue has to be cooked. What I want to tell you is eat what you enjoy, drink what you enjoy. We also own a spirits company, and people will tell me all the time, they're like, well, you have to have that bourbon not on the rocks, straight up. That's the only way to drink it. And I look at them and I say, I literally own a spirits company.
2: That's right. I'll I drink, wanted to talk to you about that. I will that. drink Blake, that shit anyway
6: I damn well please. Can we
2: say you're the only and, pit master that has created his own brand of bourbon?
6: Yes. Yes. And, and tell you know us what? a little about
2: that. Well Where we've
6: we? got we've got Peg leg Pegleg Porker Tennessee straight bourbon. We're a non distilling producer, so we don't make any qualms about the fact that we buy bourbon from another producer. We bring it in. We burn down hickory charcoal, and then we filter that bourbon through hickory charcoal after it's de So it's not the Lincoln County process, which, it, which creates Tennessee whiskey. When you go through hickory charcoal before it's barreled, after we debarrel it, we're running through hickory charcoal and finishing the bourbon. And that's what we have for ten, uh, for Peg Leg Parker, Tennessee Straight Where run.
2: is it readily available? It's across, like can I get it up in New York? Is it well, available in Charleston? It's, it's
6: across the state of Tennessee, and it's also in New York City. Okay, it's not available in Charleston. It's not available anywhere okay. else.
2: All right, so I'm going to um, have to go to like your car trunk and but steal it, a few bottles or something. Uh, right?
6: But again, again, drink it the way that you like it. It, it right. People want to tell you how to drink something or how to, you know, people love to say on the barbecue, don't put sauce on it. Dude, well, you know, this and that. We serve dry ribs. That's our specialty. You know what? When I eat dry ribs, I like to dip them in sauce. That's the way I like to eat them. Whatever you want. I've got diehard fans that won't dip them in sauce at all. They just want them dry. Right. You need to do what you love to do and enjoy it the way that you love to enjoy it. Same with wine, same with bourbon, same with barbecue. Too many people get caught up that are not producers, that are not pitmasters, they're not winemakers. We call that master distillers. Yeah, and they and they and they like to tell everybody how they have to do it, and it is the bane of our existence.
2: It is terrible. So the prospects of American barbecue as an icon is here to stay for good, and we're on a growth spurt. You know, barbecue
6: is an American institution. It is. It's here to stay. It is. It's not a fad. It's not a. It's not a passing. I, it, yep. Good. People thing. are always going to eat good barbecue.
2: The, Blake, the lines will help. Blake, that. I'm a foodie and a restaurant guy, and I always wonder, guys like you, you young guy, been in the business a long time. How do you stay relevant as a chef? How do you stay relevant as a restaurant? How do you get people coming back? I mean, beyond the obvious things, good service, good wine list. I mean, what do you got to do, like, year in, year out, where, you know, you're the guy in Charlotte and all that? Well,
5: <clears throat> excuse me, I think, you know, I'm, we're, we're pretty fortunate with being around for so long. and We come to, you know, Charleston Wine and Food, or, you know, we go, we, we do a good bit of traveling throughout the year, so that... That helps, you know. We get to go out and, and go to to go to great restaurants and and see, you know, what others what other places are doing throughout the country. Um, it's always fun. We were just out in Houston for the Super Bowl, so um, there, that's a big influx of you know Texans. So you're Max open and, to change.
2: Yeah. And see what's oh, yeah. happening, all of that.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like while we're all sitting together, it's whatever whatever you like. And what you what you enjoy tasting,
2: you put that into your own into your own bucket, you know, and make it work. Because you you've had a pretty good run, and you know that doesn't come casually. No, uh, you you got to be.
5: We've been very lucky. uh, You got to be. Any restaurant that's been open for that amount of years, we're we're super fortunate.
2: All right, so I want to do a couple of things. I want to uh, talk about you guys and why you why you're here and what you're doing. I'm going to go around quickly. And then on my show, The Grape Nation, we do a thing called The Wine List, where we ask you a bunch of questions about your preferences. And I'm very curious, you know, what you guys would answer. So we're going to start with Carrie. Carrie is down at... um, the wine and food festival he's doing a thing called hams and half shells that's tomorrow saturday right with uh, holy city hogs and on yeah. sunday a bunch of barbecue toasted, guys yeah. get together and do an event called toasted so that must be like taking lsd and walking through like a barbecue pit or something <laughs> it's awesome right? yeah. yeah toasted
6: toasted on sunday night is a wrap-up event uh unfortunately a lot of our friends all fly out on sunday but it's great because it's mainly local folks.
2: Cool. And so it's a great event. Yeah. And then, Blake, Blake, you are at the uh, Pinot event, which is a very large Pinot tasting. Are you there, Robert? And Robert is there, too. So you're doing uh, Pinot Parade. That is, when is that? That's Saturday, March 4th. Yep. That's at the Aiken House, which is on King Street. So that's an opportunity to pair up with some great, Pinot makers, like Robert and some other people, and some good chefs. So you're going to be putting some food out, complimenting and all of that? or?
5: We sure are. I'm doing a little chicken liver mousse with some goodies kind of paired with that. Yeah. Cool.
2: And then, um, let's see, what else? Robert, you, are, you did something yesterday. And tonight, Robert's going to be at the Oak Steakhouse Signature Dinner, which mm-hmm. is Jeremiah Bacon, who's a very highly recognized chef in... Uh, in charleston and you're going to be pairing wines in in that steakhouse Correct. environment right yep and matt matt has stems and skins in north charleston and tomorrow saturday you're doing cured and fermented and i've been to your place and there's like a big ham line in the and iberico ham line in the middle of the bar so i'm guessing you're going to pair wines tell me about what you're doing
4: I uh, wanted to focus on... Oh, at the bar we have a tagline called Fresh and Freaky Ferments. So trying to carry fermentation from all the beverage side into the food side. So uh, we wanted to focus on having um, winemakers come in and talk about the fermentation process more more so of wines. So cool. people could understand that. And then also having a charcuterie house from Atlanta called Spotted Trotter, which makes a great product. We, have a, we go through a lot of their stuff at the bar. Nice. And some of the chefs coming from there to uh, talk about fermentation and cured meats and things along those lines. Nice. Yeah.
2: So, Robert, Jeremiah is probably going to, for the main course, put out some big, juicy, red, bloody steak, I'm guessing. <laughs> What's the wine that goes with that?
3: You, you asked me a really tough question. What <laughs> <did> I... <laughs> it's either our Stags Leap District Cabernet Sauvignon or right. our Marcienne, which is a mellow Cabernet Franc Cabernet Sauvignon blend from the Carneros. And are you going to be serving that? I hope so.
2: Okay, <laughs> great, well, yeah,
3: you weren't supposed to ask me tough questions. <laughs> I'll stop it. all right, so
2: we want to pour a little more wine, so let's get to the next wine. I invite everyone within a twenty foot radius to come up here and start pouring wine. The first guy up was Dave, my engineer, who's very used to drinking wine. Um, okay, and what i want to do what I want to do quickly is. I want you guys, before we wrap up, we do a thing called the wine list. We ask our guests a series of questions. And what I want you to do is don't overthink this, ask them quick. It's kind of like a lightning round, all right? So here's the question. First question What are you drinking now? And when I ask you that, it's like what's kind of interesting to you? What's hot? What's on the table? It wasn't there a month ago. Saki. So, Saki? Saki. Great answer. Matt, what are you drinking now? Shannon uh, Blanc. Shannon Blanc? Okay, Blake, could be beer. Could be you know. Robert said sake. Um, bourbon, bourbon. All right, this is Carrie Bringle. I drink bourbon. All right, Carrie, you go. You know, I love bourbon. Okay. We've got our own bourbon. <laughs> But right. I've been... I wasn't too far off. Lately,
6: I've been fixated on sparkling wines and sparkling rosés. Really? Oh, yeah. Lambrusco. I am. Lambrusco is the most underrated hot pizza love wine
2: it. and all that stuff. We love that.
6: I mean, that is what I'm all about lately. If I'm drinking wine, I want a sparkling wine. I want a, a cava
2: or a uh, great, Lambrusco. Great answers. All right. Back to Robert. Fi- I will
5: say... Pinot would be my first choice,
2: then bourbon, then Pinot again. All right. You didn't, you didn't have to you answer have, wine. You know, it doesn't matter. You, you know, Robert's not sitting there saying, oh, I said sake. Maybe I should <laughs> give him a wine. It, sake's the answer. All right. So, favorite wine and food pairing? Something you go back to more than anything else?
3: Pinot Noir and Little Birds. Good one.
2: Pinot Noir and, and poultry and fowl is very popular. Yeah, yeah, quail. Quail.
4: Like salty-ass co- coastal wines and octopus.
2: Okay, that's a good one. Coastal wines from like France or anywhere? Uh,
4: Mediterranean. Like Mediterranean. Say, yeah.
2: Good one.
5: Blake? Probably um, fried chicken, like Springer chicken with, I'd probably eat rosé or pinot that's or That's a bourbon, good one. Or all, all three.
2: Right. This is Blake. I like bourbon and and pulled pork. All right, Blake, you go. I can't say what's on my mind. I, <laughs> Just I, answer the question. NSF. You know,
6: it's, no. I like. I love steak and red wine.
2: That's a good one. A that's,
6: Cabernet, that's, Zinfandel, love it. With a good, great rare. Steak. I would say
2: the two classic pairings are steak and red wine, and champagne, and or Muscadet and oysters, yeah. and all that. Oh, absolutely! All right, this is. I'm interested in this one. I want to know your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So, you do Nashville, you do Charlotte, you do Charleston, you do Napa. So we'll go backwards. Blake, outside of Peg Lake Porker, confusing you?
4: Yeah. <laughs>
2: I, no, I'm sorry. Carrie, outside of uh, um, your restaurant. I spit on myself. Sorry. That's all right.
4: <laughs> the wine is
2: working.
6: Outside of Peg Lake Port, what do I love? I love, uh, there's a lot of great restaurants in there. But I'm
2: looking for a slant towards wine, not just the food. Uh, so, Like if you go to Blake's Place, incredible we, food, we, incredible wine.
6: We every Almost every Sunday we eat at Urban Grub. Okay. Edgar Penley's a great chef. Uh, you know, a Good great clock. restaurant. Uh, Jay Pennington owns it. You know, uh, cool. great place.
2: And great wine, great bubbly, great food. Great. All right, Blake the chef in Charlotte. Chefs always uh, hang out at places that people uh, are interested in going to. What do you like? But with a slant towards wine. I would probably say
5: good food on monford they have pretty good wine list or barrington's
2: good experience um, good
5: yeah cool and uh he's one of my good friends he's he's been around as long as we have so he's uh he's got a great wine list at barrington's very small like 40 seat nice. small you know white tablecloth restaurant
2: all right matt yeah, it's, it's we a- got we got to kind of stay with charleston
4: This is tough. I'm going to get in trouble from some colleagues if I don't say it. Well,
2: I always tell my listeners and my guests, it's a disclaimer. You won't get in trouble. This is your opinion?
4: Yeah, I think the people that kind of nail wine lists and food best in this town is probably guys at Charleston Place do a great job. Fig does a great job. Rick and all
2: those guys there. Absolutely. It's like a classic wine. And has
3: been for a long time. Institution. Institution.
2: They deserve the reputation.
3: They They sure do. All
2: right, Robert.
3: Well, you know, the Bay Area, we've, we have an embarrassment of riches. You really uh, do. And so it's a little difficult. So, so, what I'm thinking of is who still has library wines? Because that's becoming more and more rare as time goes on. And, and Press up in St. Helena has an amazing library of old California wines that you just you don't see anymore. And I, I've got a Who's tip the my hat sommelier at Press? Uh, Miss White is right.
2: her right. name. Kelly White? Uh, Kelly White. Kelly correct. White, right. I've asked this question to all my guests, and press has come up, you know, two, three, four times. Yeah, but
3: but again, there's huge, I mean, the Bay Area of Spruce, you have, you know, Shelly Lindgren, you have so many people that are doing great things. Cool. All
2: right, last question. I usually ask five, but I may ask the fifth question just to Matt. Um, Favorite all-time wine. And I'm going to open it up to what's your favorite all-time wine or beer or you know, Pappy Winkle 20, whatever. So what's the wine that had
3: the uh, that that moving moment for you? Know, you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have to say uh, the White Wines of Alsace, uh, Riesling, Weinbach uh, spoke to me early on, but... You're right you know, about Ma- that. Mayakama's Ma- 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 Cab from the 70s. It was amazing.
4: Mm-hmm. Matt? Um... Very old Madeira. Very old Saturn. How old on the Madeira? Eighteen hundreds. Yeah, 100 years. Like 100 that. years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still can get it? Still. Oh, no, like, I Hard not, to get. Not,
2: hard to get, yeah. Hard to get. Okay.
4: That's the most memorable one. All
2: right. Blake, a wine that... What stood out in my or mind... Or a drink.
5: <laughs> especially with wine was... I did a few stints in Spain many years ago. And drinking the old vine, Garnachas, that they have... Uh, I have a friend, his wife is actually, a, uh, she has a winery there. Just wa- looking at how it's, it's tiered down and how the land is just incredibly difficult yeah. to work on. But that Old World wine was something that I've, I can still taste in my mind. Yeah. The first sip. Because it's not like California wines. It's totally different. Uh, That's
2: a good choice. <clears throat> Carrie. I'm not
6: sophisticated enough about wine. <laughs> I like Apothic like Red, you know. I
2: mean, it's just $12 wine. Uh, as far as a drink... You know what? Apothic's not a bad $12 it's red. A great,
6: it's a great wine. Uh, you as know what far it's as not a drink, good
2: with? It's $4 steak.
6: Yeah. You know? Uh, I love Old Forester's Birthday Bourbon. Is one of the best bourbons on the market. And one now, of the is best that I've something
2: had. we could get, if we look for it, still out there? They, hard, they release
6: but... it once a year. It's allocated. and uh, But it's a... Old Forester Birthday Bourbon. They release it once a year. It's one of the best bourbons you'll ever have.
2: Old for, wait, Old Forester. Old
6: Forester Birthday Bourbon. Birthday Bourbon. They release it once a year.
2: Okay, it's an incredible bourbon. All right, we're gonna we're gonna look uh, out for that. All right. Um, I want to thank I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Carrie Bringle from Peg Lake Porker. I want to thank Blake Hartwick from Bonterra. What's the full name? Grill and wine bar or what? It's a uh, Bonterra Dining and Wine Room. Bonterra Dining and Wine and all that. Matt Tunstall, Matt from Stem and Skins in North Charleston, and Robert Sinski, renowned winemaker with vineyards in the Carneros region. Vineyards on your own property in Stag's Leap, Leap, which is, is that technically Napa? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I asked you this earlier. All the wines you make are estate-grown. These are your own grapes.
3: Correct. But because of our government, I can't use it on my label. Really? So even though I planted every vine for every wine, I can't say estate-grown except for my Stag's Leap district property. Because it's it's
2: contiguous to where you live?
3: Exactly. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: What about building, like, a little house in Carneros and
3: going there in the summer?
2: Can you do that?
3: Only if I make the wine there. Okay. (laughs)
2: All right, listen. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for coming to the Heritage Radio Network, to our TP in the culinary village, um, for our weekend of broadcasts. We'll be back here tomorrow with a great kickoff show. At 11.15, we have Daniel Belude, Michael Anthony, the chef of Gramercy Tavern, and Gail Simmons, who was here earlier. And then we have a full day of terrific guests. Katie, can you go online and see that or the guests? Okay, so it's heritageradionetwork.org slash Charleston and if you're interested in tuning in. And I will be back tomorrow with Daniel, Gail, and Michael at eleven fifteen. And then I'll also see you at one with a bunch of other people that I can't remember because Robert brought four <laughs> bottles of wine. So five. 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 So Kat's gonna be on in a few with Katie Button. We'll see you tomorrow and thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied, but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at biggreenegg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms. Over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.